Last week we looked at John 14 and we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, his, uh, just his working in the life of the church. And we looked at the different relationships that we have with the Holy Spirit. And we, we saw the root of that going all the way back into the Old Testament. You know, the Spirit of God coming upon individuals. And then now in the New Testament, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, now the Holy Spirit comes into us when we're a believer in Christ. And then it gets even better than that because he comes upon us at times to empower us for service. And that's what God does. And that's his heart's desire is to, is to make us useful in his hands and to glorify him because it's all about him, right? And this morning as we look at John 15, Jesus, remember, is with his disciples in the upper room uh, and he's still um, talking to them. He's still preparing them for what's coming, his, Im- his impending death and ultimately his resurrection. And Jesus told them that he would send the Spirit of God after he was glorified, that, he would, that the Spirit of God would not only be with him, with them, which he had been, and especially while Jesus was with them, but once he, Jesus is taken from them, he said, I will send the Spirit, he will come, he will dwell in you. And we saw that on the very day of his resurrection in, the up, in, in, in a room somewhere, uh, that they were gathered and the Lord breathed upon them and they received the Spirit of God and became born again. And then it was later, uh, 50 days after the Passover, on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, it says that the Spirit of God came down upon the believers and empowered them. And they went out into the streets and the, Jerusalem was was filled at this time because of the Passover feast. And they went out and they spoke with boldness the wonderful works of God. That was the intention of what God was doing. He was going to empower them just as he empowered Peter on that same day, on the day of Pentecost, to to preach a very simple message, but 3,000 souls would be added to the church that day. That's a lot of people. And so God was in the process of working in his church. And so Jesus, now as he is continuing in this upper room, hours away of, before his false arrest and his false uh, arraignment and his false um, accusations and, and ultimately his uh, capital punishment, which was in, in every way false in their, what they were doing, he's still preparing them for that time. And Jesus Notice, let's just look at the first eight verses, and that may be all we get through today. We may get through the chapter, but I doubt it. (laughs) But let's look at the first eight verses. So Jesus, in that upper room, as he's preparing them, and um, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit, You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me... He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. 
so will you be my disciples. So a wonderful passage before us this morning, and there's a lot here. Let's look back at verse 1, because Jesus says something here. Notice, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Twice we see in this chapter where Jesus says, I am the vine. In fact, he says, I'm the true vine, and we'll look at that, why that is. Because in the Old Testament, Israel was likened to a vine, likened to a vine. And um, I would encourage you to write these four scriptures down and, and look at them in context of this idea of Jesus calling himself the true vine. Because Israel was the vine throughout the scripture. Let's look at, just look at some passages in Psalms, verse 80. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Restore, this is a psalm of Asaph. He said, Restore us, O God of hosts, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you have cast out the nations and planted it. Who is this vine that was brought out of Egypt? It was Israel, wasn't it? And you have cast out the nations, those seven nations, the Canaanites. He cast them out and he brought them, the, the uh, Israelites, into that land and gave it to them and planted it. And verse 9 it says, And you prepared room for it and you caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. And the hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. And then here is the cry of Asaph, which was certainly the cry of the people of Israel. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. So in context, we see that this vine is Israel. This this vine this, that would take root after it came into that land of Canaan and God caused them to destroy Joshua and the men of Israel to destroy all those nations that had been in idolatry for hundreds of years, doing unspeakable things, sacrificing their children to false gods and engrossed in sexual immorality and you name it, they did it. And God had, there's a moment where God says, that's it. I'm going to bring judgment, and I'm going to use my people to be that hammer that comes into the land. And he did. He drove them all out, little by little, and he planted this vine that he had taken out of Egypt, and he planted them in that land, and they spread and like, like a vine would spread across the ground. And even the major prophets of the Old Testament, thinking of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all attest to this as the Lord spoke through them of Israel and even of Jerusalem, personified as this vine. Turn with me to Isaiah 5, and we're going to look at uh, some of these. It's important to see. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, is really upbraiding the children of Israel because they had great responsibility. God had given them the very oracles of God. He had given them so much, and they had a purpose. God had a plan and a purpose for them, and in their process of figuring this all out, they failed. They failed, like you and I would fail too, because none of us are perfect. But they rather went into idolatry. They began to be like their neighbors. And 
bow down to images, and God had to judge them. He had to bring judgment upon them. Yes, God would use Israel as a judgment to other nations, but he would also use other nations to chasten or even judge his people. Not to the end of destroying them, but to chasten them. There was always instruction involved in it. Because he was never going to eradicate his people altogether. He would cause the, you know, the spear to come after them and the sword, but ultimately he would redeem them, and ultimately he would restore them to their land. And ultimately he did in 1948, and he will continue that process even into the millennial reign, which is still ahead of us yet. But notice in Isaiah 5, look at the first seven verses. It says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? It's a very good question. So God is really taking them to task on their idolatry and taking them to task on their wickedness. And notice in verse 5, he says, And now, please, let me tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of, of severity, especially when it comes to sin. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Never forget that. He hates our sin with a passion, but he loves the sinner. And so his intention is to bring them. But he says, and now please tell me what, uh, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. And notice verse 7, here it is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Again, the vineyard had a purpose. And the vine had a purpose. And instead of being a shining example of, of God's faithfulness and all that God had done, rather they succumbed to what we have as well just giving in to the lower nature and in our sin. And notice in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said I will not transgress. And, and, and Israel did that right after the commandments were given. And even before then, uh, they said that we will, we will do what the Lord says. Whatever you tell us, Lord, we will do. And those are really great words. It is. They're great words, but they were empty because they didn't have the heart within them to obey. They were still bent on rebellion. And God knew this, of course. And that's why he brought the Ten Commandments and the other commandments to prove to them that word, that law, was a schoolmaster, a tutor to show them that they can't keep the law and to show what God's holy standard was. And they could not. And actually, many of them would not. 
And you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill, God says, and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot, meaning their, their idolatry. And yet I planted you a noble vine. Notice that. A seed of the highest quality. I, I, I cultivated you. I gave you everything. I gave you vineyards that you didn't even have to, to, to furrow the rows. I, I, when you came into the land of Canaan, you inherited everything that they'd been doing for hundreds of years. You didn't have to do a whole lot. I cultivated you. I, I prepared things for you. I gave you everything. Yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. And again, the Lord just bringing them to task. Look at Ezekiel 15, please. Take a look at that. Ezekiel 15. And we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's fairly short. Ezekiel 15. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? The answer is no. Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? The obvious answer is no. Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it, and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, and they will go out from, out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus will I make the land desolate, because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. And so they were the vine, and they were unfaithful. And so Israel was likened to a vine again, but the, the vine had failed. And the people failed morally, as also did the leadership, the, the Levitical priesthood, the leaders, they all failed. And that is why Jesus said here that he is the true vine. He is actually the embodiment of what they weren't and never were. He is the vine. And when you think of a vine, you think of something that get all the other branches off the vine gets its nutrients from that one vine. And Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father, notice, is the husbandman in the King James, or vine dresser in the new King James. I am the true vine. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, we have noticed seven different things, seven different I am statements that Jesus had made you know, that he was the bread of life, that he was the light of the world, that he was the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in this last I am statement, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And again, why is this significant? Because when Jesus, or excuse me, when Moses was before the fiery bush in the desert, you remember that God spoke to him out of that fiery bush. 
And God had a plan for Moses. Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell my people to, I'm, I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to use you to do it. You're going to be the leader. You're going to bring them out. And you remember what Moses said. He says, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, this is Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 13. When I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, uh, and they say to me, well, what is his name and what shall I say to them? And God said to him, I am who I am. And the Jews knew when Jesus said, I am, they knew exactly what he was doing. He was declaring his deity. He was affirming his deity. I am this. I am that. Jesus went through seven times in this gospel and says, I am all of these things. And remember, a number of times they grabbed stones to stone him because of blasphemy. Now, if it wasn't true, it would be blasphemy, but he is God. He is the great I am. He is the, the one. He was the one who was speaking out of the bush to Moses on that day when he was in the backside of the desert. Jesus is God. And the world needs to know that because there are world religions that think he's, well, he's just a good man. He's a good prophet. Hey, listen, if that's the end of your religion, you're going to die in your sins. Because you have to come to the, the, the fact that Jesus is God Almighty. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Nothing that was made wasn't made without Him knowing about it. He was the Creator, and He and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word, who was equal with God, became flesh. We know that was Him in His incarnation through the Virgin Mary. Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what is His name going to be called? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Yes, this Jesus. In fact, this gospel, the whole theme of it, you recall, is written for us in John chapter 20 in the very last verse. It says, But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's what it's all about. And so when he made this last I am statement, he's basically affirming again, I am who I am. I am God Almighty. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that he is the great I am? Whatever you need, God is there for you. He's not going to leave you. Whatever your need is, it doesn't matter how great it is. It could be something simple. It could be something really huge. Let me tell you something. There's nothing so big in this world that God can't overcome. There's nothing too small that he won't stoop to help you with either. It makes no difference to him. He can do the big as well as the small. It's, it's equally as easy. Because look at who we're talking about. This is the one who spoke all things into existence when there was nothing. Try doing that sometime. Try going to the Harvard professors and the guys at Princeton and Yale and Oxford and go to them and say, hey, can you, um, can you make something that's never been made? Can you make something out of nothing? Well, well of course we can. Prove it. Prove it. They can't. they got to use the material that he called into existence to make anything, and even that's imperfect. But God made everything perfect. Everything he made, he said, and it was good when he made it. He made it, and it was good. Amen? And he made you, and he said, it's good, good, until Satan slipped in, and until our own will engaged but notice back in our text in verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Now, unfortunately, this verse has wounded many of Christians over the years. You know, at, you know, looking into the Greek at a few words changes the whole tenor of this verse. And it's important to do that. If you don't have a Strong's Concordance, get one. Or if you've got a, uh, I use Olive Tree. It's a Bible app that I use on my iPad, and I love it. It's great. And you can get these tools, and you can start looking at what these things mean. And yes, learn what they say in the original language, because sometimes the translators, when they translated something from the Hebrew or to the Greek, put in a word that may not mean a whole lot to you. But looking at the original, sometimes, and this is a good case in point, it changes the whole tenor of the whole passage. Because at first reading, you might think that God is angry. If you're not going to pull your weight and shape it up, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to take you out. I mean, is that really who God is? And yet this verse has been used to beat so many people over the years, to manipulate them, to make them feel bad about themselves. Hey, I feel bad about myself enough. I don't need the scripture to beat me up. But you know what? They use that. But when it says takes away here, um, it means something completely different. You know, God is loving and he's just, and he is a God who hates sin. Don't get me wrong. And we, we, are, we know that very to be true. But as a born-again believer, you are treated as the bride of Christ. After you become a believer, you are the bride of Christ. And can you imagine any husband treating his bride harshly? Dragging her through the mud, saying she's got to prove, you know, you've got to go through a lot more things before, you know, we can continue on. You've got a lot more work to do. It is true, we've got a lot more work to do, but he, he, he does it in us, and he did it first. If the Spirit of God is in you, you're born again, and you're on your way. And now it's just sanctification. It just takes time for these things to happen. But notice... The Greek word translated takes away here in verse 2 means something different. It's the Greek word arrow, and it literally means to lift up. Write that in your Bibles right now if you haven't already, because somebody's going to say, well, if you're not bearing fruit, man, God's going to pull you up. Is that true? There is a truth. It's only true with an asterisk, okay? Because that word actually means arrow, which means to lift up. The idea is to raise it up or to elevate it upward. And we're going to see what that means. Because when we think of a vine dresser, a vine dresser is a tedious and tiring work, often requiring at least four different steps before they have a successful vintage. There are at least four steps. The first one is desuckering, and this is literally removing any non-fruitful shoots so that the vine is encouraged and it takes all of its energy on the fruit-bearing shoots. So desuckering and pulling off those things is something that's necessary to do. And there's also the lifting. As the shoots begin to grow on a, on a grapevine, they must be raised from the ground as they start to get heavier. They're going to sag to the ground, and they need to be lifted up. And, um, and attached to even wires or affixed to some kind of wood above, uh, above the main support of the vine. And it needs to be trellised because as these separate shoots start to go, they need to be separated and they need to be uh, stapled to the wires and that prevents them from crowding one another. And it also allows the light and the sunshine and the air to get in between and give it life because without that, the vine is going to grow or it's, it's going to die. And that's what a vine dresser does. And also pinching back or pruning. And we're going to look at that next. 
that prevents the vine from producing foliage at the expense of the fruit. It's all about energy, isn't it? The vine is producing, is sending nutrients to those things, but if those things are dirty, if those things are in the mud, they need to be lifted up so the air and the sunlight and the water and the air can dry it out and it can become healthy. It can receive the vitamin D from the sun. And that's, that's what God does to the vine. And that's what he does to us as well. He does the same to us. In fact, if you go to Israel with us at some point, or maybe you've been to Israel, as we're driving all over, especially the north of the Sea of Galilee, there's vineyards on either side of the road. And I remember we were driving one time, and I saw a vineyard, and there were these boulders, you know, about that big around, and, and, and the, the vine dressers would put the, the boulder underneath these vines because the vines were heavy, and they were laden with grapes. And without that boulder in the way, the vine itself would lay in the, in the mud and it would get rotten in the water. And you know what happens when you have water and, uh, and it's just laying there? It starts to decay and it's not good for the vine. So what does the vine dresser do? He takes something and he props it up. He lifts that vine up so that it can, has every opportunity to live. Because without it, that vine's going to die. It's going to rot right, on the, <laughs> right there in the field and it's not going to produce grapes. And so he props it up, he elevates it, he lifts it up. And see, that's what God wants to do with us. He's, he's not interested in just coming in and going, oh, it's not doing good, I'm just going to pull it out of the ground. You know, that's what people think of God. They think of his character as like, yeah, if you're not, cut, you're not holding your weight, I'm just going to pull you up and throw you in the fire. That is not the character of God. He's first going to lift it up, he's going to be gentle, he's going to try it and give it every opportunity to grow and to bud Every opportunity. See, that's the difference of the love of God and the love of man. Man would just say, well, you're not giving me what I want. You're out of here. God says, well, you're not giving me what I designed you for, but I'm going to do everything I can to give you every opportunity to grow. See, that's the love of God. That's a love. That's other-centered love. That is true love, and I love that. Don't you love that? And notice in verse 2, it says, that every branch of me that, he, that does not bear fruit, he literally lifts up or elevates, because that's what the word means. And um, the word, actually, uh, did I say what the word is? Yeah, it's arrow. That, that's literally what it means. And then notice now it says that, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And that's the idea for those of you who are gardeners. You prune things so that if there's a dead uh, leaf or something like that growing off the vine, you'll, you'll clip that thing. That's dead so that the energy of that plant, of that root, of that system can go to the fruitful plants and not try to go to a dead part of the plant. So you'll definitely cut that off. But it also means to cleanse. It's the Greek word kathero. And uh, it means to cleanse. To clean from filth and impurity. And now when we look at this verse, it changes, doesn't it? When you look at it, it's like, well, he's going to elevate it. He's going to lift it up so that it can dry, so that the sun can get it, so that the air can get to it. That's why they use the word Greek word arrow. And now he prunes. He's not just going to prune and clip off the dead spots. He's going to cleanse the plant. If there's any dirt on it, he's going to wipe it off. He's going to take care of the leaves. See if there's any problem. See, now this verse sounds like the loving Heavenly Father we know him to be. And this is the type of tender care that God gives to us. You see, he's not mad and desiring to strike us, 
which is what some churches, some pastors over the years have used this verse to really bludgeon the church with. Hey, there's enough that we got to worry about, but he's not going to beat his bride. <laughs> he's not going to cut her off. If you're one of his, if you're abiding in him, you're abiding in him. If you're not abiding in him, you got a whole different problem. But if you're abiding in him, he's going to take care of you. He's going to lift you up. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to wash you and cleanse you. And that's his desire, isn't it? He wants to give you every opportunity to live. And so don't be surprised when God has to prune something, something or someone out of your life because maybe it's poisoning you and you're, it's stunting your growth. And so have you ever noticed that in your life that sometimes the Lord removes a person in your life? You may be thinking that this person may be the one for you and you're, maybe you're a single person and you're dating somebody and they seem like everything you, you know, this is such a great guy, such a great gal, thinking about marrying them, and all of a sudden the Lord just severs it. He, he does something. He did that in my life at one point. When I didn't want it to happen, he says, Rob, I got a plan for you, and this person cannot be in your life. I got a plan for her, but I got a plan for you, and she's to be no part of it, and I've got to cut her. I got to cut it out of your life. And he did. He severed it. It was quick and decisive, and it killed me at the time as a young person, but I, I, later I got to understand that God knew what he was doing because he gave me a wonderful wife and uh, he knew exactly what, who he had called me to be with. But sometimes God has to prune because he knows that that relationship is going to be poisonous. Sometimes he's got to take something out of your life because it's being an idol to you and you're becoming to idolize it. You're spending more time with it than you are with him. You're relying on it more than you're relying upon God. And he says, you know, I can't have it this way because it's not good for you and it's not good for the other person because that person needs salvation just like you do. But that person is bringing you down and I've got to remove them from your life. It's called the blessed subtraction. Remember that phrase? Sometimes the Lord does that in individuals' lives, and sometimes he even does it in churches. He removes people. And, and it doesn't mean that they've done something wrong, and it's not for me to know why he does things. This church belongs to him. He does with it what he chooses. I have no control <laughs> over what God does. I just hope I'm in his program, and I hope I'm being faithful to him and to the word of God, because if I'm not, then he's going to remove me too. Not from salvation, but remove my position and what he's called me to do. But sometimes we can develop relationships with people that, are, that become unhealthy. You know, our expectations can be unrealistic of them. We can grow too dependent upon them. We can seek a relationship for selfish and self-motivated reasons. And plus, we can influence each other in negative ways. And that is not love either. And God says, i got to put an end to it. Got to put an end to this unhealthy thing that's going on. But notice at the end of verse 2, he says, and every branch that bears fruit, notice, underline the word fruit, and then at the very end of that verse, more fruit. <laughs> every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Now, with your eyes, look down in verse 5, and you're going to see another phrase at the end of verse 5 where it says much fruit. Underline that as well. And you can see the progression he wants to bring fruit in your life, and then more fruit, and then much fruit. And that's the way it is with God. It's always adding and, and, and making something more beautiful. 
Because when your life is given over to Christ and you're abiding in him, that's exactly what's happening. He's having more, of, more real estate in your life and in your heart, and he can do more with you now than he's ever done before in your heart. And see, that's what he wants to do. Whatever job that you're doing, don't worry about anything. Just do this one thing. Give yourself completely over to Jesus Christ. Abide in him in every meaning of the word. Give over everything of your heart to him and say, Lord, I'm here at this shop, in this dentistry, I'm in this place, wherever it is, and Lord, you've got a plan for me here. You want me to be light here. So do with me what you want. Help me to abide with you right where I'm at and not worry about anything else. Trust me, when the time comes, he can lead you on, and he will and does. But you just be faithful to him where you're at. You abide in him. And he wants to bear more fruit. Notice in verse 3, he says to his disciples, Now you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Again, this word is katheros, and uh, it means exactly what it is, to be clean, you're pure. And God's desire is to cleanse us from our filthiness. Because guess what? The world is a filthy place. Have you noticed? (laughs) it's a filthy place. I mean, our entertainments, our movies are filthy. Our music is filthy. The magazines and the books that we look at are filthy. Much of the media and the internet is filthy. Some things that your kids are being taught in the public school is filthy. Yes. That is why the word of God is spoken like water. Notice in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, what does Paul exhort the Ephesians and the men of that church? He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That she might, excuse me, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Notice, excuse me, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that they should be Holy, that she should be holy and without blemish. Doesn't that sound like what the vineyard does when he prunes? He's cleansing, he's watering, he's doing all these things. And the word of God is a cleaner for our heart and mind. That's why we need to read it often. That's why in John 17 it says, Sanctify them, God, Jesus spoke to his Father. Sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. And also in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God, what is it? It is quick, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. Yes, the word of God is like water. It's, it's also a two-edged sword. It's a cleanser, a healer. Read it often and, 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 and let it filter through this filthy mind that we all have. And maybe you don't have a filthy mind, but I, I want to suggest to you that be careful of the things you watch and the things you listen to. Because those things are either being a, a catalyst for you to draw closer to the Lord or they're taking you away from the Lord. And why do you want to listen to something where it's just full of curse words and full of profanity and full of innuendo? All that does is feed your lower nature. What about your new nature? What about the Spirit of God in you who's being grieved by you listening to that junk? Seriously, think about it. All of a sudden, now everything, the things I watch, the things I hear, should be on the table for the Lord to examine. Are you letting him examine those things? Or are you saying, nope, this is, what I'm, this is my thing, God. I've given you the keys to everything else, but I want this one thing. 
I want to be able to watch my movies, whatever I want, and I want to be able to watch and listen to whatever music I want. You, it's off the table, sorry. And you know what? God is such a gentleman. He'll say, okay. We'll start there. <laughs> we'll start there. And after a while, you wonder why your life is shriveling up. It's because, you, like the vine, you know, instead of it being lifted up, and God wants to lift you up, he's telling you what to do, and you're ignoring him, you're rebelling. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go this direction. Well, you're going to pay the consequence for that choice because the consequences come with every decision we make, either for good or ill. We have to make a decision. Am I going to follow God and obey the word of God or am I going to follow my inner nature and obey it? I'm sick of my old nature. Honestly, it, it, it was crucified and still continues to need to be crucified. Doesn't Paul tell us that? Crucify it daily. Don't give it an inch. You give it an inch and it will take a mile. Trust me. And you know this to be true because most of us are old enough to know. And you've experienced it. You have experiential knowledge of what I'm telling you. And so Jesus finally in verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. And underline that word abide. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This word abide literally means to stay in a given place or a, a given state, to, to continue to dwell, to endure, to stand. It, the sound of it is very, um, it, it's very obvious, it's very... Uh, decisive it's a decision of the will a decision of the heart and this greek word meno is the greek word it occurs over 34 different verses just in this gospel alone and it's a greek word that the translators translated into english with words like abide or staying or remain or remaining enduring it speaks of dwelling and remaining. The first time we see this in the Gospel of John, it's in uh, the first chapter, and John says, um, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven, and this is uh, John the Baptist. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained. There is the word, abide. He remained on him, and I did not know, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, there is the word again, on him, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. We also see it in John in the same chapter, in verse 37. The two disciples heard Jesus speak, and they followed him. And then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is to say, Teacher, where are you staying? There it is again. Where are you abiding? Where is it that you stay? Where's your place of permanence for now? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying. There it is again. And remained. There it is again. He remained with him. Remained. And the first time we see this verb in the New Testament is in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus told his disciples as he sent them out, now whatever city or town you enter, inquire in it who is worthy and stay there, abide there until you go out. So we are to abide in Jesus. And he's telling us to abide. Abide in me. Abide in me, he says. So let me ask a question. Practically, how can we do this? I don't have an exhaustive answer, but as I was praying and thinking about this, I'll give you some ideas. Practically, abiding in Christ can mean, at the very least, to stay with him and not to depart. 
This means continuing to have fellowship with him, regardless of our location, regardless of our circumstances, and certainly reading and listening to the word of God regularly, to read it and to listen to it. Right now, we are abiding. I don't know if you know that. You're all abiding. We're all abiding together because what are we doing? We're listening. We're, have, we're hearing the scripture expounded. We're being encouraged in the scripture. Right now, we are abiding in him not in Calvary Chapel, not in any person. We're abiding in Christ because we're here, we're reading, we're listening, and also praying. When I'm praying, I'm abiding. And and again, there's a lot more to this. These are just a few things. And also being obedient. Being obedient to the things that we read and know of Jesus. To be obedient to his words, to his commandments, and also his example. How did he live? How do you know how he lived unless you read? you got to read what the Bible says, and then i got to make a decision. Am I going to be like that, or am I going to be like my old nasty self? Does anybody like their old nasty self? I don't like my old nasty self. Even on my best days, I know I'm still a rascal. I know that to be true. Even on my best days, when I think I'm really something, and God says, oh, you're really not that, Rob. I love you, but you got a lot of work. we got a lot of work to do, but I love you, and I still want to work in you. And also walking in the Spirit and, and, and walking circumspectly. Walking in the Spirit. Asking the God in the morning to fill you. And Lord, you guide me this day. Interruptions and everything. You do what you want. Because sometimes the things that we're interrupted by are God's appointments in disguise. And we often think, well, I've got my list, God. I've got this and this and this to do. And then I've got to be down at town at 2 o'clock for a meeting. And don't you dare interrupt me because this is my plan. And God says, well, you prayed this morning that for me to use you, right? Yeah. Well, what happens if you're on your way to that 2 o'clock meeting and you have a flat tire? Well, that's really going to be upsetting to me because I'm going to lose that account because of the meeting. He's like, don't worry about the other account. i got a better plan. Because somebody's going to drive up next to you and help you with that tire, and you're going to talk to them, and that person's going to receive me on the spot. <laughs> Which is more important? Which is more important? And so sometimes when we are interrupted, it is the Lord interrupting us. But we need to be walking in the Spirit, asking Him to be involved in our life daily. What does it tell us in Galatians? I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you you shall not fill the lust of the flesh. And by walking in the Spirit, we are actively abiding in Christ. In fact, in Romans, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God, for it is not subject to the law, nor indeed can it be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you see the difference? If the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are in the Spirit. And then we need to walk in it. We need to actively be willing to do it instead of being a resistance. Instead of resisting the Spirit of God, let the resistance go. There shouldn't be any resistance. You know, we can put a tourniquet around our life with God, and he says, will you just take that thing off, and I can flow freely through your life. And you take a garden hose and you kink it, that that thing's not, you're not going to be walking in the Spirit. So don't resist him. Give him everything. 
And what does it tell us also in Ephesians? See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, uh, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This word circumspectly means to walk diligently, to walk purposefully, to look around. I'm in a fishbowl. Do you know that you live in a fishbowl as a Christian? People are watching you. And we need to walk circumspectly. That means carefully, diligently. That means that i got to examine everything that I do. And you know, it's, it's a lot easier when we just stop thinking about it and we just start abiding. The more you abide, the less you have to worry about all the stuff, right? See, I really think it's much easier than what people think. You know, some people are just of the mindset where it's like, well, i got to do this, i got to do that. And before long, man, they're just, oh, <laughs> And they're just full of angst because they're afraid. They're afraid. I'm afraid of messing up today. Hey, listen, just relax. Just relax. And just walk with the Lord. It's that simple. You're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. Confess them, move on. But ask the Lord, Lord, fill me today. And just help me not to be a stubborn stick in the mud. Have you ever been a stubborn stick in the mud? I have. Sometimes I can just be so obstinate. I'm like just a rock. And he's like, oh, goodness. Do you ever feel like that? A rockhead? A blockhead. That's what I am. But notice in verse 4 as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, abides in the vine. You see, we Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree. But the natural branches were Israel. And with them, we Gentiles become partaker of the root and the fatness of that olive tree. Paul tells us in Romans 11, he says, For if they're being cast away, speaking of Israel, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, because through them the Scripture came, through the Jews Jesus came, giving us salvation. If they're casting away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, he's speaking of Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. That's good information. The root supports you. And you will say then, branches were broken off. Israel was broken off that we might be grafted in. He says, well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith, but do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. (laughs) Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. And if you continue in his goodness... Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Isn't that amazing? We Gentiles were grafted into the the blessings of Israel and the blessings and the promises. And yes, he broke off those branches of that wild olive or that that tree, and that was Israel. But he's going to return. He's got a lot more work to do in them. And many of them are a part of the church today, which praise God for that. But we are the ones that are grafted in. Hallelujah. 
I remember, so there's no such thing as replacement theology. In other words, the church has not replaced Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. God has a plan for them. He's got a plan for the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. But he's, he's going to deal with Israel. We read about it in, in, in Revelation, in the Great Tribulation. He's going he's to do a lot of work in them. And they've got a hard road ahead of them. Pray for them. Seriously, and don't be afraid to witness to, to a Jewish people. Yes, they can be stubborn, but so can we. But we need to show them, more than speaking to them, which we need to do, we need to show them the love of God and not just beat them over the head and make them feel, you know, say, well, Jesus was the Messiah and he was a Jew and why aren't you, you know, believing in him? What a hypocrite. All of your scriptures, all the Jews, you know, it's all about Jesus and why can't you see Jesus? People get like that with them and they're like, whoa. Remember, they are just a person who needs salvation. They've been given a lot, and God has taken them to task, but he's not done with them. He's not done with them, but we were grafted in. But notice, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me. See, we can't bear good fruit unless we are abiding. Unless the branch is abiding in the vine, we cannot bear any fruit. And it tells us this in Psalm 1. What does it say? He, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This is somebody who is not abiding in Christ. Because first, they're, they're walking in the counsel of the ungodly, and then they're standing in the way of sinners. Next thing you know, they're getting out a lazy boy recliner. And they're sitting in the seat of the scornful. They've made, they're now abiding in a different thing. They're not abiding in Christ anymore. They're abiding in the ways of death. They're abiding in the things that are not of God. And then notice in the very next verse, everything changes. But the blessed man is the one who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and, he, and in his law he meditates day and night. And notice verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf will also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That wonderful tree. Have you ever seen a tree by a stream? I love going by and seeing streams and walking along a stream and seeing this big, beautiful tree, just so happy to be there. It's like, man, I could have been planted anywhere. I could have been in the, in the desert, in the Sahara Desert. But look at me, man, I'm right here next to this creek in Penfield. And all the water's going by all the time, and I just, my roots are all down, and then just like, oh. Receiving all the water, the nutrients, I'm just soaking, I'm a sponge. Oh, and the branches are tall and green and beautiful. <laughs> Amazing. That's the life of a believer who's abiding in Christ. You're plugged in to him. But we look at other instances in the scripture. Jesus said to those Jews, and this is John chapter 8, he said to those who believed in him, if, here's a conditional statement, isn't it? If you, abide, if, if, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you're abiding in me, you are going to be my disciple, and the truth is going to set you free. And in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Are his commandments so grievous? No, they're not. They're good. 
And he who has my commandments and keeps them, uh, John 14, 21, is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Jesus finally said in uh, the 23rd verse of John 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So you actually see then, those who are abiding in Christ are keeping his word. They're loving him. They're keeping his commandments. Now, that doesn't mean that you are perfect in them. But here's the thing that we do when we, when we blow it, we make a mistake. What do we do? We confess. We confess our sin. And, and, and God says, I accept that. On the behalf of my son's blood, I accept that. And now it's as if you've never done it before. Let's go on. <laughs> and that's how easy it is. But notice these conditional statements because you can be a believer and not be a disciple. Let me suggest that if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you'll not be a very fulfilled Christian. And you may, as a result, struggle even with your assurance of salvation if you're not abiding in him. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're going to struggle because you're not giving yourself over completely. It doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven, but it means experientially your life is going to not, not going to be what it could be and even what it should be because of your own rebellion, because of my rebellion. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And notice, you'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing, doesn't it? But he's making the point very clear and very simply. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. But every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. If you're abiding in Christ, there's going to be fruit in your life. And if you're not abiding in Christ, there's going to be no fruit. There's going to be no fruit. And if you're not abiding in him, you've got to ask yourself the question, do I really belong to him, or am I just a... A Chino, a Christian in name only. <laughs> Am I a Chino? <laughs> Am I a Christian in name only? See, Judas was a Chino. He was a Christian in name only. He appeared to be a vine as he was there with the twelve, and none of them suspected Judas for a minute. He was part of the vine, or at least he thought he was. Everyone thought he was. Jesus was the only one who knew better. But the rest of the guys, they thought, hey, he's one of the branches too. But was he one of the branches? No, he wasn't. He never was. But he appeared as a branch. And let me tell you, Judas is in hell. And one day he will, be, he will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Forever. In a new body that will be able to withstand the flames of hell forever and ever and ever. Notice verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him bears much, 
much fruit. For without me you can do no, nothing. Notice the result of abiding in Jesus is much fruit. That's really what it is. So apart from his redemptive saving work in our hearts and lives, we can do nothing of eternal value. Even the horticulturalists and the, the botanists, they know that no one can survive apart. Nothing can survive without it being attached to the vine or the root. It's just not possible. It gets everything it needs from its source. And Jesus is the source. He's the source of life. He's everlasting life. He's our sustenance. He's our provider. We're going to stop there. <laughs> we got through the first five. And we'll continue this next week and we'll finish the chapter next week. But I want to encourage you to abide in Christ. Take those things and, and really examine your heart this week. God forbid none of us are actually playing a game. But there are people who play games. They're imposters. See, the devil would love to join Calvary Chapel. And he would be fine sitting here. But he's an imposter. His heart is not to draw near to the Lord, rather it's to draw other people away from the centrality of the Word of God. And if you're one of those people today who, who comes and rather than supporting what the Lord is doing and rather than wanting to abide yourself, but if your intention is to look like a branch, but really you're seeking to draw other disciples to yourself, maybe to a doctrine of your own, you better be careful. And in fact, if your doctrine, if the things that you're trying to spread are not in the word of God, I would ask you to leave. And don't come back until you're ready to hear the word of God and humble your heart. It's called a wolf. And they're awful, also wolfettes. Female wolves. If you want to abide in Christ, you're welcome because I want to continue to abide in Christ. I want to continue in this process of abiding and soaking up the nutrients and the, the good provender that God gives us. He leads us beside the still waters in the green grass of plenty. <laughs> he leads us beside those things. That's what I want. Is that what you want? Because if it is, then we're here together and we're getting blessed and we're getting encouraged. But if you're here with some ulterior motive, then I would ask you to leave. If you want to, be, if you want to resist that work, then leave. But we must abide because Jesus wants to us to abide in him. So examine your life this week, and I'll do the same. We should always be doing that because it's a constant thing, isn't it? It's not just something we do once. It's something, because sanctification is what? A process. It's a process. It takes time. God is working in every one of us, and we're all in different places. And, you know, I love that. Because there's some people who are really mature in their walk with the Lord. They've been walking with Him for some time. And there's some people who are just, they've just been born in a sense. They may be 52 years old. They may be 80 years old. They just got saved and they're, they're young in the Lord. And it's okay. We can all do this together. We're going to make our mistakes. We're going to say things wrong to each other. Can we just get over ourselves? 
Instead of looking at each other and, and you know, do you understand that, that we're all, we're, we're, you know, many of us are walking in, re- some, well, I'm not saying many of us, but some of us are continuing to walk in rebellion and others are abiding and it takes time and we're looking at each other and stop looking at each other too much and pointing fingers and saying, well, I'm doing this, but you're not doing that. Hey, you know what? That's a critical heart. What did Jesus say to Peter? You follow me. Don't worry about him. You keep your eyes on me, Peter. Don't worry about John. I got a plan for him. I got a plan for you. Stop comparing yourself to others. Let's abide in the vine. And we're all at different places. We're all at different maturities in our walk. Let's learn, just understand that, that in any church, and this is where squabbles start and, and, and problems of disunity when people especially the older folks who are in the Lord, you should know this by now. When you see a young believer, instead of browbeating them and making them feel like they don't belong here, why don't you draw alongside of them and help them? Because they're young, they don't know. But you are experienced, you've grown in the Lord. Use that growth and grow in grace and love these people. When you see them making their blatant mistakes and their silly things that they do, some churches, some people will be like, I can't believe him. Can you believe him? And they'll get on the phone like, I can't believe him. You know? And it's like, really? You're going to do that to people? Hey, you were like that once. Let's love one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you're abiding me, love one another. At all of our different, with all of our spots and speckles and wrinkles and gashes and all of our imperfections, can we just grow and love one another in spite of all these things and just realize we're all on the, we're all on the same page. We're growing. Can we grow together and be like, not like some churches can be, some churches, it's a war zone. Everyone's fighting and bickering and complaining and gossiping about everybody else. Let's not do that. Let's abide in his love. And truly love God and love people, regardless of where they're at. Just encourage them. Let God do the work. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, we just thank you for this passage, Lord. There's so much here. But, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rediscover, Lord, where we are at. Are we truly abiding in you, Father? Have we stopped examining our lives and, and, and said to ourselves, I've gone far enough, I'm comfortable with where I'm at, and, and I've gone no further. Lord, help us to not allow that mindset, to not allow that heart to creep in. And if it is there, Father, forgive us and cleanse us and prune us if necessary, that we might bear more fruit, that we might abide in you, Lord God. And so please cause us to grow, Lord. Help us to abide in you, Jesus. How we thank you for this time together and pray that, Lord, you would just fill this place. Fill this place with your love. And I pray that for everyone here, God, that they would know how much you love them. You love people, God, and you love everybody here at Calvary Chapel in spite of our spots and wrinkles and warts and pimples and everything else. Lord, you love us immensely. And Lord, help us just be willing to be loved by you and help us to treat each other well to treat each other well, so we shall be your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.